You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 255, Mark Brownson and Honesty with God. Friends, did you know you can do that? Yeah, you can. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I, of course, am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here with me. I am so glad that you've downloaded this episode. Uh, friends, if you if you are in a conversation with uh, one of your friends about podcasting, because podcasting is getting everywhere. You know, we're gonna, I'm going to go to a conference probably right around uh, the, the time this comes out and there's going to be like 5,000 of us. There's a lot of podcasters out there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, podcasting is getting bigger and bigger. And so if you have a conversation about the podcast you love, would you just mention halfway there, share it with your friends, tell them to download an episode or two and check it out. That would mean a lot to me. All right, friends. So today I'm really excited about this conversation uh, because our, our guest, he's a pastor and an author and uh, we're old friends. I'm looking forward to hearing more of his story. Our guest is Mark Brownson. Mark, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate I'm, being here. Yeah, I'm so glad to to do it and connect with you. And so I'm going to just, for context for our friends here, uh, we we had recently our buddy Charles Causey on the show, who uh, who we worked together as a security guard at, at Hewitt Associates. Uh, way yeah, back. I listened to that podcast. I really liked it. Was it? Yeah, he was great. Right. It was really interesting. And, uh, so, uh, so that's, you also were one of those, one of those guys that I worked with back in the day. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate looking back now, uh, you know, all of you more mature people, uh, keeping me in line as a young 20 something, uh, theological whippersnapper. It was good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I remember that. I remember working the slink with you at Hewitt and uh, you and your wife uh, coming through a little later after we came in on the day shift, yep. and you getting off. And, um, I, I, uh, I remember those days quite fondly. Yeah, you know, I do too. I remember that's the kind of, that was a job that I just was too young to appreciate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was, it was good back then. It was one of a kind job. It truly was. It was one of those wonderful organizations that uh, with Dale Gifford leading it and stuff like that, it, we had some years there where they couldn't build the buildings fast enough to keep up with it. And they really ran it well. And I learned a lot about public relations and mm -hmm. people and uh, HR and all that stuff, just walking the halls there and seeing how they did things. Yeah, pretty interesting. Anyway, okay, so we go way back. I want to hear I want to hear your story. Um, incidentally, I'm just going to mention this, guys. I'll put these links in the show notes. Two other guards that we work with, Rob Burns and Mike Elder, have both been guests on the show back in the previous year. So they're they're out there too. If you guys want to hear those stories, uh, great, uh, great men and great great pastors. So, all right, Mark, I want to hear your story. I want to dive in your story. I did mention uh, that you were an author, and you just put out a book. And I, I have to tell you, brother, I saw your video. I shared it. Because when you unbox the, your book, you just had this this smile of pride on your face that just made me so happy because uh, I, I thought it was super cool. But the book is called Honesty, A Believer's Struggle with Prayer and Faith. And uh, this has kind of your, been your most recent project. Well, I've always been big on, on the whole idea of grace and the gospel, and I wanted to put it out there in a book. 
But this has been pretty much a lifelong dream. You mentioned that video. I am very happy and excited about it uh, because my story starts uh, and my struggle with God, and I put it there, a believer's struggle with prayer and faith because the Christian life is certainly no better roses. And at least it hasn't been for me. And this started for me like second grade. Uh, I was diagnosed with dyslexia and they told my parents that I would never learn to read, uh, let alone wow. write. And uh, so this has been the culmination of years and years of uh, getting to this point. Yeah. Um, so it represents so was, something for you. Uh, it's a big accomplishment. Oh, very big. I mean, um, I didn't learn to read until seventh grade. Wow. Uh, and I had one of these uh, new agey teachers that was all love and hugs, but no discipline. And so I'd go back and forth between the special ed room and my mainstream classroom. And uh, I'd hide in the library because I didn't want to go back into the mainstream classroom. And I started reading Reader's Digest condensed versions and pretty much taught myself to read more than simple sentences. So oh, that's at that a point. Great. Yeah, that's amazing. So you you had to do it yourself, and you just had to practice. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It took a took a lot of that. Uh, somewhere in there, I came to. Well, I don't know the exact date, but I came into a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ uh, when my mother was disciplining me of all things. Oh wow. Okay, so I want to hear that story. So, was your family was it a Christian family? And you were in Montana, right? Is that right? Do I remember that? Yeah, I was in Montana. My dad was a university professor in agriculture uh, during this time at Montana State University, uh, where I got my undergraduate. And um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but uh, not in the traditional sense. We ran a few cows on the side, and because it would be a conflict of interest for my dad, they were all under my mother's name. She was the cattle rancher. So. <laughs> That's funny. Was it a Christian family? It was. Um my dad came from fundamentalist Baptistic roots, and uh, that's where we started out with my mom. He actually met my mom at a college group at the church and uh, later got married. Okay. Well, that's good. So what was that like for you growing up? It sounds like maybe a little strict. Uh, it was a little strict. When I was a junior high, we moved to an evangelical free church, and uh, uh, that got a little better. But yeah, it was no... Uh, no cards, no drinking, no rock and roll. Uh, uh, these things were all of the devil. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's where it came from. And uh, I didn't rebel big against it. I wrestled in high school, and I mean, I was into Death Leopard and Kiss and all all these satanic groups. <laughs> yeah. I still love a lot. So I'm well, look, okay. My show's called halfway there, right? It's a hat tip to Bon Jovi. I tell people, right? Cause everybody knows living on a prayer. And I figure if you can leave uh, a conversation with me, you know, singing that in your head, you probably won't forget the name of my podcast. So I, uh -huh. I guess I used, uh, I used a little uh, devil. Although to be honest with you, I found so much about faith in Bon Jovi's music particularly, but all those other ones, I love it. Anyway, okay. So I want to go back to that story. You said you found faith while your mother was disciplining you. Tell me that story. Well, um, she thought I should have become a lawyer uh, partially because uh, she would discipline me and, I mean, get 
paddled with a wooden spoon or if my dad came home and turned into a leather belt. Uh, typical sort of stuff for me. And it wasn't frequently and it wasn't abusive. I had to be really bad to get that sort of stuff. But anyway, I was talking her out of disciplining me one time. <laughs> and she used that opportunity to present both the law and the gospel to me in the sense of the law that I was guilty of sin and that I needed a savior. And then she introduced me to Jesus Christ and I prayed the prayer. And mm. Consequently, I got out of being disciplined as well. <laughs> okay. So you came to faith in Jesus so that you could get out of a punishment. I mean, that's kind of how it all is. <laughs> I guess that's how it works. Yeah, I guess so. I guess now that, now that I say it out loud. All right, cool. So then you, you mentioned that you rebelled a little bit in high school. What was that? What was sort of your early uh, discipleship? Like, like what was, how did you learn the way of Jesus? Well, I mean, we were in church every Sunday and a lot of other times, and uh, I did it along that way. And uh, a lot of my discipleship came when I was taking a nap on the couch when my dad wasn't home because he, he wanted me out in the shop working with him on the tractors or the cars or feeding the cows. But during the day, I, over the summer anyway, when I was in school, I could lay on the couch and I laid on the couch, studied a chessboard and listen to my mom have Christian radio on mm. and uh, we had back to the Bible and Dr. J Vernon McGee and I cut my theological teeth listening to the Christian radio. Yeah. 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 That was interesting stuff. Wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it was great stuff. And my mom loved that. And she, she was a first generation Christmas Christian and we always contributed to those. And my dad and mom were involved with Wycliffe, associates and Wycliffe Bible translators too. And we frequently had missionaries on furlough come through and visit and stay in our house overnight. And that was always an interesting experience as well. Oh yeah. So you had, you were just kind of steeped in this, uh, in, in Christianity. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So how did that start to develop for you in a, in a more personal, personal way as you grew older? Well, it didn't happen until I went to college and, uh, uh, because of my dyslexia, I wasn't planning on going to college. I had took vocational stuff in high school and um, was able and still am able to weld, work with wood, some mechanics. Uh, I don't like the mechanic stuff as much, but I can do it. Uh, and then they pulled me aside partway through. I was still in special ed for English all the way through high school and study hall and gave me an IQ test, and they said it was pretty high. And so, the, and since my dad was a university professor, which I think he has dyslexia too, he would probably not admit to it, but he always needs oh, help wow. with his writing. Uh, they sent me to Azusa Pacific University in Southern California. And I went there two years until I ran out of money. <laughs> uh, little Wesleyan school down there. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, uh, was during that time I was working with uh, independent Methodist Wesleyan church that was doing a restart of a church plant, uh, kind of, and I was uh, going to El Monte in the LA suburbs there and picking up Hispanic kids in this old Mercury Capri I had, big old boat of a car, <laughs> and hauling them to youth group and dinner and stuff at this church, and that's that's where I got my call to ministry. Well, tell me that story. How did that happen? Well, 
I was struggling with a lot of things while I was at Azusa Pacific and uh, I really felt God wanted me to do something more permanent to impact the kingdom. And I was praying about it and talking to God frequently about it. Uh, me and God, uh, we, we frequently have arguments. That's, that's how our relationship is off has worked. Uh, he always wins, <laughs> but, but we, we frequently, uh, go to it. And during this time I was taking a comparative religions class and it was wonderful. It was in LA. It's this beautiful, pristine thing, but we'd go and like, we went to a mosque, we went to a synagogue, we went to a Hindu temple, all these things, of course, the LA area has. And I was really struggling with truth and relativity and why these other religions have elements of truth within them. And so one day I just went in to our bathroom there in the little uh, student housing where I was staying and kneeled down at the toilet and said, God, I know this isn't your type of throne, <laughs> but God, I, I'm really struggling with this and why, why there's truth. And I came to understand that there's an element of truth in every lie. It has to be, to be believable. Mm -hmm. And all these other religions have that element of truth. Otherwise they wouldn't be attractive within them. And I struggled with God more on that. And about soon after this, uh, I was just ready to dedicate myself to going into Bible and doing this. And God says, guess what? You don't have money to do this. So I went and spent a summer in Alaska and ended up back at the state school where my dad was a professor and I could afford to go just working over the summers. Yeah. Okay. So you felt... So, so I'm really curious about this part because I, I don't, maybe it's more common than I experience, but I love what you said. God and I frequently, you know, have arguments, right? Like, like, and yeah, of course he wins, but that whole thing of taking that, taking your struggle to the Lord this is why I talk about a lot on the show about Habakkuk, because I just love the way that Habakkuk goes to God. He gets labeled as a complainer in some of the, some of the Bibles, but really he is mad about what he's seeing and he goes to God and then God answers him. And then he says, wait, but I don't like that either. And then he goes back. Right. And it's just this kind of back and forth, like you're describing. I think that's a really biblical thing. Where'd you learn to do that? Uh, it's just kind of come out of uh, my complaint about God from everything from being in a special ed classroom to yeah. to how my life has progressed. And that's a lot of what my book is about, honesty and prayer, honesty with God about our prayers, honesty to our neighbor about our need for a savior. Mm. I mean, that's repentance. That's forgiveness. And that's where forgiveness is found. And I think that a lot of Christians particularly on social media, but other places want to portray themselves as having it all together. Yeah. As uh, being blessed and super spiritual. And I've ran into this in the church. And I think there's even part of this book as well as I think the Christians need to hear the gospel because we forget that we are sinners saved by grace. And we all of a sudden think that now it's something I got to do and work. But I, I yell at God and I, in my prayers, out of my troubles, out of my suffering, out of where I am. And I think that's what God actually calls us to do. And I think mm -hmm. we find it throughout scripture, like you were saying in Habakkuk, Absolutely. like everywhere, even Israel wrestled with God. And uh, it's, 
it is the Christian life. The Christian life is one of discontent, uh, what I call a holy discontent. And I talk about this some in the book too, a holy discontent that makes us long for the life to come because in this life, we will never be where we need to be. Right. And, want to be. and that motivates us and keep, keeps us growing. Okay. So you felt this call to ministry. Where'd that take you? Well, it <laughs> back to Montana State University. And then I tried to start a college group at the Evangelical Free Church where we were going to it didn't have great success, uh, but I tried to do that. I was involved in Campus Crusade and InterVarsity while at the state school. I got my degree in education and history and poli-sci to teach high school, that sort of stuff, economics. And, uh, and then I got out of there and I substitute taught and worked in a factory and all these things for a few years, trying to save up money for seminary. And finally, I just said, I got to go. And I got accepted at three different schools and Trinity was one of them. And uh, that was my first choice choice because I was coming from an E-free background. So that's where I went. And uh, that's what got me into school and back pursuing my dream after uh, taking six or seven years off. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know that I knew about that, uh, that season where you kind of took, took time. So you, did you just work and save up money so that you could go? Uh, yeah, I did. And it wasn't near enough money. Uh, that's what you <laughs> I know, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first uh, quarter, I think Trinity was on the quarter system when I started there. Uh, I lived in um, a maid's quarters up above uh, a big house up near the school or near Trinity there and uh, lived on a bag of bag or two of potatoes until <laughs> Hewitt came along and I had a job part-time with an antique dealer in Lake Forest. So, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know you did that. Cool. Yeah. Fascinating. There were a lot of those places. I don't know. I remember Cody Namber, which I would love to have Cody on sometime. He will see, but uh, he, they lived in one of those places too, right? Like a little, little, like little, I don't know, a little room above, up above the house. Kind of interesting. It was an interesting area, right? Cause there's a lot of, a lot of money, a lot of big houses. Yeah. Well, I moved from there partway through because she wanted to take it. She was Korean and she was married to uh, an Anglo guy that uh, had a transmission shop in the area. And man ran trans ran cars through like uh, changing out the transmissions really quick, like an Amco or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she wanted to turn it into her church for her Korean ministry. So I lost my apartment and had to move to Highwood. Oh yeah. Oh, that's of course, I was there. I was there seven years or so because that's how long it took me. <laughs> it took you a little while. Did you go part time to school? Uh, yeah, I did. I went part time to Hewitt, and I took beginning Greek three times to get past. Oh wow! I bet that I can see with dyslexia that'd be tough to kind of like it's hard enough to learn the language on your on your own, but then to to do that was it? What what finally got it for you? the grace of a teacher, to be honest with you. I'm still not great at Greek uh, and Hebrew is even worse. And I, and I do it and I use them and I got great Logos tools, but yeah, it's, it's not my forte. My wife can speak German fluently and that, but my, my language is, uh, I still piddle in it a little bit cause I like it and it fascinates me, but 
learning to read English was hard enough, let alone Greek and Hebrew. Yeah, and it was the grace of a teacher. And then I went on from there and they continued to be gracious to me and helped me through. And once I got past the rote memory stuff of the words and the verb endings and the noun endings and things like that, I did better. I love that. All right, friends, I just got to point this out because if you have not been to seminary, you don't understand. And it's okay that you don't understand, but this is a real struggle that all of us go through is figuring out the languages and having to get through that. Now, some schools are removing some of those language requirements or not making them as robust as they were back in the 90s when we were going to seminary. But uh, it's it's a big deal. Like it's a huge thing that you have to kind of kind of get over. And there's a really important hermeneutical reason for you to learn how to translate and understand the original text so you can understand, you know, what's, what's going on. So that's a whole nother episode probably, but I just wanted you to have that context that, that there's, there's, it's a big deal to, especially at Trinity, right? It was a big deal. The languages were a huge piece of that degree. Well, unless you passed the proficiency exam, which uh, I did not either. You yeah. had to have four <laughs> years of Greek and three of Hebrew. Oh my goodness. And that's if everything went well. Now, fortunately, the preliminary Greek was not for credit, so I didn't get graded on it. I didn't pull down my GPA. But yeah, it, it was big, and I didn't know how. It's the grace of God and the grace of my professors that I made it through. Yeah. How did, how did your time at seminary uh, shape you and shape your relationship with the Lord specifically? Actually, in a very positive light. I loved the academic part of it. I loved the exegesis, uh, being able to get into the word and and understand it for myself and interpret it for myself. And I, uh, within its context, within its literary genre, I love that sort of thing. And um, for me, and because I took it part-time while working full-time at Hewitt and able to study there, as Kazi talked about, as others do, was a wonderful job. I was able to do that. And for me, uh, seminary was very positive. It's what I had been living for even while I was at college, trying to get there and get to the place where I could be a pastor. What I love about that is just the maturity of delaying it a little bit, right? Because I'm so convinced, certainly when I was there, I was young and I should not, I had no business being a pastor. And that's probably a good thing I didn't end up being one. But that, um, it just, we need more maturity on the part of our pastors, right? So I think just taking that time uh was probably really really good did you did you see that as well in retrospect in retrospect yeah it was positive of course right now i'm not serving an organized church and uh i lost that too so so my dream kind of fell apart and this is uh part of the honesty part with god i mean we live in an era of unfulfilled dreams and even when we want to serve god we can't always in the way that we dreamt or imagined that God would use us. Yeah. And so there's a lot of big disappointments in this life. And um, when we go to God with him and we wrestle and we complain and we gripe, and he has everything in a time and for a reason. And I have seen the hand of God move uh, providence and get me where I need to be and when I need to be and teach me what I need to be when I'm there. Um, but pastoral work is not something that someone should go into lightly or when they're too young or because they think it's an easy job. I mean, <laughs> I have people say all the time, you only work one hour a day, okay, or a week. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
<laughs> I mean, you get these kind of things in there. Or, uh, jealous of your vacation, even though they give you four weeks of it, because what I would do is, I know Kazi's in Hawaii now. My dad would go to Hawaii, and my dad and mom would go to Hawaii, and I'd take my week of vacation and go stay in their condo with them and enjoy Hawaii. And all I'd have to do is pay for the airline ticket. Yeah. But there was a lot of people that were very jealous of that and thought they were overpaying the pastor or, or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's an issue and that's a discipleship issue, I think. So, um, so how, where'd you go for after school? And then what, tell, tell us about that. Sounds like you, that kind of leads up to maybe a dark night of its own, of its own kind. So take, take me up to that point. Well, I, I moved outside of Columbus, Ohio and pastored my first church, uh, which was very small and in the middle of a cornfield outside of Columbus. And it had moved out there to escape the changing neighborhood of the city and the color of the skin of the neighbors. Yeah. And it, it never grew. They never wanted it to grow. Anyway, I was there three and a half years. And then I moved to Pennsylvania uh, to a large cathedral of a building in an old coal mining town called Shemokin. And it, Beautiful facilities. I think the insurance company said it would cost over $3 million to replace, but it was old congregation. I think while I was there, I uh, buried 23 World War II vets. Wow. And uh, during this time, um, I was set up with my wife uh, by my district sort of supervisor guy. He called me one day and I was walking up and down the halls and upstairs of this uh, parsonage or manse, uh, we called it a parsonage, and uh, crying out to God that I was lonely and I didn't understand women and I needed someone to help me understand women. Anyway, during while I was praying, I received a phone call from my district supervisor, and he said, I got this young woman here, Beth, staying overnight at my house. She works with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And uh, she's looking, kind of looking for a husband. Would you mind seeing her? And she, <laughs> her parents live in the area. No pressure. <laughs> not, not a big, hey, here I am. I'm a 40-year-old man. Right. And, okay, uh, wait, wait. So I want to I want to talk about that for just a second because – you know, you, you allude to this, but, the, but you know, there's so many people who, who have this and we don't talk about it a lot in the church. Like, how was that? What was that experience like for you? I mean, it sounds like it was very frustrating to be, to be single as a 40 year old man. Like you, you've been praying and waiting to find a woman to marry. And I was, I was lonely and I had been set up on a previous blind date kind of by my parents and it didn't work out. Uh, uh, three dates and she thought it was getting too serious. So she broke it off in the area there. And so uh, at this point in juncture, and I had older women in the church pursuing me that I wasn't interested in thinking that if they got close to the pastor, they could do it. I had people say, based on the Matthew passage where two or three are gathered that if I wasn't married, God wouldn't answer my prayer because we needed at least two people there praying for what? God to hear my prayer. Oh, weird. That's the weirdest interpretation I've ever heard. Okay. Did you correct them on that? These are some of the misinterpretations that, yeah, that story's in the book. Oh, my At goodness. parts of it are. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, th this sort of stuff goes on 
in the church, well, later on, after I was married, I had the same group of people said I had uh, chased the spirit out of Trinity Church. I'm not sure which spirit that was, but <laughs> uh, through my preaching and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I wasn't spiritual like they were because I wasn't married, so I couldn't pray and God wouldn't answer my prayer based on that. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so you meet your wife. So I meet my wife, and we uh, she comes actually to a Lenten service I was doing uh, with another church across the street, and we were switching congregations. And I go out, our first date was out to Dunkin' Donuts, and her parents were along because they had driven her to church. So. Romantic, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Romantic, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm 40 years old, and she's uh, seven years younger than me, but She's actively involved in Christian service. And my goal was, and I told God this at the time, Lord, I want more than three dates because my previous relationship <laughs> short term landed on three dates. So I want to get it past three dates. Well, needless to say, it got past three dates. And uh, we we married, uh, we've been married 14 years. Uh, the wedding took place a little under a year. She She had a three-year goal. Because uh, she wanted to know me for three years. That didn't work out. We moved up the timetable. <laughs> and, uh, I would encourage that too. There's, If you know, if you're of the right age, there, there's no use putting your body and your emotions and everything and that sexual strain and all that stuff and waiting three yeah. years. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, we got married. And uh, I knew she had struggled with depression while we were dating. And uh, she was working with Child Evangelism Fellowship, and she was burning the candle at both ends. She was a state trainer, and so she traveled all over the state of Pennsylvania training teachers to do clubs for children in schools and in churches and stuff like that. And um, she was tired, and we, I, being a Western guy, I took her to my dad's cattle ranch in Montana and for our honeymoon, and my dad's cabin is where we stayed and that's two miles from the nearest electricity or landline. He has solar power and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, um, during this time, uh, she had a major bipolar breakdown and this is a struggle with God too. She didn't know where she was going. She tried walking in her socks out of the cabin, 40 miles to the nearest hospital, which she didn't know where it was at. Oh, wow. She had called her mom on the limited cell reception we had up there and told her she wasn't doing well. Anyway, I got her in the car, in the truck, I should say. My dad has all these old four-wheel drive trucks. Yeah. Uh, Drove her to town, kept her from jumping out of the door because she wanted to go into the light. She thought she was having a mystical experience and she was dead. Okay. So that, that must've been, uh, you know, challenging as a, as a experience. What'd you do? Uh, I got her in the hospital at first, uh, hospital th- staff thought I had, uh, beaten my wife and was abusing her and, until she tried to pull, I was out on the cell phone talking to her mother and she tried to pull IV out of her arm and escape the ER. And then they started the brain scans. We got her on medication and it's a struggle. And uh, we're honest about all this stuff because um, the number of women who 
have felt free to share about their emotional illnesses or mental illnesses uh, since then has um, really come out and it's been a help to her. It's therapeutic for her too, because when you're trying to keep secrets, that's again, back to the book about honesty. And I didn't go into this deeply Hmm. in there, but when you're trying to keep secrets, it's just so hard to be honest and transparent about God and his work in your life and share. This is a way to share the gospel. Mm. is by our weaknesses. My favorite verses, some of them are at the beginning of Corinthians there, where God chose the weak things of this world. Yeah. And yeah, I'm one of those weak things. And yeah, my wife is one of those weak things. And we need Jesus desperately and all the time. But anyway, we got her on medication. I got her home and she's been hospitalized a couple times afterwards. But the stress of church life and and living in a in a glass bubble and people looking at us and being critical. And she's very talented. She went to Philadelphia College of Bible and she's an accomplished pianist and um mm. and uh very talented in many ways. Uh uh she typed my book for me and that sort of stuff. And there's some errors in there and that's okay. I'm human. Maybe the second addiction I'll get rid of them. Yeah. Typos. Iteration. Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, that, this happened, and, and talk about a downer. And sitting in the ER on one occasion after having to carry her back in, because and having the nurse say, you, you know, it hasn't been that long since you married. You, you want an annulment? What? Um, no, this, this was a lifelong commitment. Yeah. And it's before God. And um, and then the church people all around seeing all this transpire and happen and wondering what is going on. And some of them thinking the pastor's wife has a demon. Uh, you know, that, it's just. That sounds really painful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, life life is like that, and it is really painful. But my wife is really good, and uh, she still struggles with it. It's not something that went away. And the right medicines and stuff like that is hard sometimes. Um, but she's wonderful, and uh, uh. We just take it one day at a time or try to take it one day at a time and do it. And that's, I'm, I'm her life coach. Now she brings in the money and I'm, I'm her life <laughs> coach. And I, I preach on my front porch and hopefully the neighborhood hears and, Yeah. Uh, at uh, St. Mark's of the hood. I chose it. Uh, <laughs> the name is a little bit of an irony. Uh, I love that. So, okay. So you has, has that whole thing, uh, you know, I, I Obviously, this is sort of a. It sounds like that was, you know, not you must spend your honeymoon in the hospital, and that was sort of a diversion that you didn't expect. But it's difficult. So, how's that shaped your relationship with the Lord and the way you understand Him, especially in light of the rejection from the church? Uh, yeah, it shaped me. I mean, oh, I had some yelling matches with God. I still do. Um, about that and about number of other things, the church, and there's other issues with the church that uh, finally ended my career, at least in that denomination. I still hold my ordination, but I, I'm not, they don't want me back there. 
Uh, but uh, it's um, that's a whole another story. But yeah, I yell at God frequently. I do it. I I yell at God about everything, whether the hurricane's coming and going to affect uh, <laughs> the possibility of my wife having work today, and whether she has to sub out and we have to lose money because of that. My relationship with God is one of honesty, and he already knows who I am, and he knows my struggles already. So why not just come out with him and argue about him rather than trying to pretend uh, I got it all together? Rather than trying to pretend I'm something I'm not, that I'm some sort of super spiritual being because I'm a pastor. Right. I'm not. I mean, and I tell this story as well about a pastor that preceded me at my first church. He used to mow his grass in a white three-piece suit. <laughs> really? I mean, it was a ride-on. It was a ride-on lawnmower. It didn't get green, I hope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. I'm just imagining that. Okay. Wow. But, okay. So that, I, that's like I Boss am, Hog I mowing the lawn. And we are who we are, and we've been honest about all this stuff and my ongoing struggle with God, even why he would stick me in Florida without a church in the middle of an African-American community that's dominated by drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, and so you're – that's interesting. Okay, so tell me the story of how you got there because I think that's really – you know, and you can go as deep as you want, but I'm curious about the sort of – events that led up to that well we were in my third church after we got moved from the first church we had a vibrant children's ministry going and all the old people were dying away and a generational conflict anyway we moved like five miles away to this other church and um it had its own struggles and they didn't necessarily want me there as the pastor they had one of the sons of the prominent member was a youth pastor there. They wanted him back as the pastor. And he is currently there as a pastor. Um, but um, anyway, long story short, we started to make some changes at this church. These are little coal mining churches, beautiful facilities built back in the day by the hard labor of Pennsylvania coal miners. And each, each ethnic group had a, a church and ours was, Pennsylvania Dutch, German-speaking Methodists that were our denomination actually went back to the circuit riders being saved under the ministry of John Wesley. Oh, wow. And uh, they got saved under his ministry, and then they wanted to found a church that spoke German. And so they went out and did that and reached the German population in those areas. Anyway, it was a small church, though, and we were starting to see it turn around and bringing in some new people. Anyway, I brought my dad in, and I love my dad, but it was very hard. My mom had just died of cancer, and I asked him not to, but he decided to date two different women in my church at the same time. Oh, no. And Yeah, yeah, I know. And he decided to marry one of them who uh, was a divorcee and was in the church and leading prayer meetings, but she wasn't honest about who she was, and she liked to date a lot of men uh, with money from the community and do missionary dating sort of stuff, trying to get them to marry her. Anyway, long story short, uh, 
after my dad got back from the honeymoon, she showed up at my church all by herself. And I threatened her and I shouldn't have. Oh. At the back of the church. And um, anyway, uh, I fought to keep the church for another year. And I ended up losing, losing the church and being sent to Florida, supernumerated or something like that, which just means early retirement without any benefits. Okay. And so I ended up here in Florida. Uh, I was on my way to Knox to do a doctor of ministry degree. Uh, they said my GPA was too low from or from Trinity. And uh, we were also going to work at a missions organization, uh, being house parents to Chinese students. Well, that fell apart. There was a crash of a airline around Indonesia about that time. And oh, yeah. The Chinese all got scared to come here. And so that job fell through, too. And so I ended up living with my mother-in-law and father-in-law in Daytona Beach for a couple of months. And they were here longer. And... Um, I was working, got a job pretty quick on because I wanted to buy a house. One of my prayers had been, God, I'm tired of being moved every three years because that's what this denomination did. And Parsonage and having to lose my house and basically be homeless every time I lose my church. Yeah. And uh, so I asked God for a house. And guess what? He provided a house and a job. I went to work for this realtor who did a lot of repos. And I bought a house from her in Daytona Beach, Florida for $13,000 cash. And it was a crack house with the plumbing tore out for scrap. And, oh, wow. Uh, uh, the yard full of junk. And uh, this is still a house I live in. And of course, a bit of a handyman and uh, allowed me to use my other gifts. And we finally got the office up and running, and my wife has a professional job teaching English over the computer. And uh, I worked in suntan lotion factories. I had a license to sell insurance, although I never could do it ethically. And uh, all these things led me to the point where I am right now. And uh, living in Florida, trying to do a church plant in a neighborhood that will always view me as an outsider. Yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose in some in many ways you probably are, right? You're as a as a white oh, guy definitely. in that in that area, uh, and yet you know the gospel needs to needs to go out as well. So, how do you do that without being other? Like, how do you do that without being like coming in as the sort of, hey, I'm the white savior guy? Yeah, and it is hard. Yeah. Um, one, I have decided. I can't just give them five dollars because they take it to the corner store and use it for beer or crack cocaine at the house next door. I can't just hand out money. Two, I don't try to be black because I'm obviously not. <laughs> yeah. I just be who I am because I can't be anything else. It's not a matter of me trying to be somebody I'm not. I am who I am. I'm not one of them. But I live here. I own a house. I own property. They need to deal. They got to deal with me. I had the opportunity to give a book to uh, one of my neighbor's mothers the other day. I was telling you about it. And yeah. 
this is the way. I talk to them. I fix the children's bikes, at least I used to. I we For a while here, we had kids coming every Sunday, and I'd feed them breakfast, uh, mainly boys, African-American boys, which are so needy. I mean, it's a direct pipeline in this community from the school systems to the prison for African-American boys. Yeah, which should, that should infuriate us, right? Like, that, that should make us just absolutely activated. It, it does me because I love him. I have one little boy that I paid for baseball camp for. I took him out around and now he doesn't want anything to do with me. He He's going the route of the drug dealers because they drive the nice cars. And I love this child as if he were my own son. Yeah. And um, it does. It infuriates me. And they don't have a decent education system. Although education isn't necessarily the answer. Uh, the churches around here have become all about the American dream and getting money, mm. the prosperity gospel, and being somebody. And so the drug dealer, you don't know if they're a drug dealer or a preacher. They got blessed on the license plate, and it's a Cadillac. Yeah. And, uh, but yet God is at work. And um, I realize as well, and I do talk about this some in the book as well, is it's not my job to save anyone. I can't save anyone. All I can do is be a witness. Yeah. And I just be who I am and I try to love them. I try to fix their bikes. I, I have lent out tools so that they can try to fix up their house. I even provide training if they want that. Most people don't see their need, though. And that's where many of us are, no matter what race. We don't see our need. Yeah, fascinating. Well, I love you just being there and uh, offering practical help and support as you see the opportunity. I think that's really uh, all what we can do. So I I think that's amazing. All right, Mark, um, I did want to talk about why, like, so why did you decide to write this book? Like you said, this was a lifelong dream of yours and you, so, so you wrote it, but what are you hoping people get take away from it? Well, I wrote it with the gospel in mind. I mean, I down here in Florida and I met RC Sproul briefly before he passed away here. I, so I definitely wanted the gospel in it. Um, I also wanted it to be about prayer and faith and that it's a struggle. I, I want people to understand that this walk with God is very difficult at times. And I did, I tell my life story a little bit in here. I mean, you're all about the Christian experience and that's great. It's, I mean, I'm an existentialist to that extent. I think we experience God. But it's more than that. That needs to be filtered through the scripture, and we need to understand it. As I was coming to this book, believe me, all these struggles and problems with the church just about made me lose my faith. Mm. Yeah. And walk away and, and just kick it all to the curb and say, that's enough. I've done it. I've tried, God. It's all about me now. Now, I didn't lose my faith in God, <laughs> and I probably should have never had faith in the church. Mm. But the organized church uh, in America is in a bad way, and it really needs to get back to the gospel and its roots and to Jesus Christ. 
And so that's behind me writing this. And would I like to make some money on it? Of course, if I'm honest, I'd love to make some money on it. It would be nice to have some money around here uh, to pay some extra bills. And so my wife didn't have to work as many hours or and I could continue to work on the house and things like that. But that's not the main motivation. And I also don't think that I necessarily want to give it away free, particularly to people who won't do it. Because, you know, as David talks about in the Old Testament, when buying uh, the wine press for the future temple, will God be pleased with me if it costs me nothing? And so I wrote it, and hopefully it's not exorbitant. Hopefully people appreciate it. Uh, it's an honest look at prayer and faith, and it's my experiences filtered through the gospel and why I still believe in God and in Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible and still go in prayer, which I believe is the primary expression of our faith because faith is akin to dependence. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which is another word for, for faith. Yeah. And so when we pray, we express our dependence, our faith upon God. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Mark, I love that. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. Certainly I am looking at so much of what's going on in the, in the church and we'll have to have another conversation. Cause I just like, I'm, I could go off about that, but nobody needs to hear that right now. But, uh, but that's, but yes, we need to, we need to absolutely, I think we need to raise people to maturity in Christ. That's what, uh, you know, finding ourselves in him is, is the deal. And I can certainly see why you would go, Hey, this, the church maybe wasn't doing that. And that's, um, profoundly disappointing. So, um, I appreciate that. Uh, Mark, I love that you, t that you also are just encouraging people to allow yourself to struggle and to admit that struggle. So honesty, a believer's struggle with prayer and faith friends. This is at Amazon. You can get it at the show notes at halfway there podcast.com. Mark, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, Mark Brownson, uh, facebook.com. I think that's my thing. Uh, I, I am on Amazon. I, I take messages, uh, everything I write is out there. I hope to be writing some more maybe. And that's another reason I'd like this book to sell is it would allow me time to maybe write another one. Um, and, um, that's, I'm not a big technology guy like you, Eric, I'm moving there <laughs> and I'm hoping to get some websites up and stuff in the future. Yeah, well, that's certainly, you, you, that'll help you out a lot, I think, create that hub, but I love it. So friends, again, you can just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. I'll put links to Mark's Facebook, uh, and you can certainly message him there, as well as a link to Amazon, where you can pick up a copy of the book. I went out and bought it right away as soon as I saw it was coming. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Just that God is good and faithful and can be trusted even though the world is falling apart around us. Um, he's, I mean, we look at the politics, we see things and God is, God is still there and in control of the universe, um, despite who's elected and what's happening around us. As he always has been. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you sharing your story. Thanks for being here. Okay. Thank you, Eric.